welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipin Anand. This podcast series is meant to bring you different perspectives and concepts in safety. The idea really is to create space for thinking and reflection, not to reinforce any grand theories or our prior knowledge on a subject. The aim is to learn and grow, not to remain stagnant. And of course, as I keep saying, there is no reason for you to believe me or any so-called expert, but keep an open mind and be prepared to challenge your beliefs if you truly want to learn more than what you knew yesterday. Well, I see you've got your world map all set. <laughs> I used to study sociology at Cardiff University and we had a professor, his name was Peter Fairbrother from Australia. And he had a map right outside his office, which was upside down. And I used to be very curious and just to ask him, why do you see the world this way? <laughs> um, yes. And he said, there is no such thing like upside down. Uh, he corrected me on that. He said, it's, it's a perspective. And interestingly, Rosa, you go on the internet to purchase a map like this, and everywhere it says the world upside down. And I wonder why. <laughs> he was so right. <laughs> kind of <laughs> resonates. How are you? Well, good, good. We, you know what? We keep forgetting we live in a very large universe. <laughs> Uh, where our upside down is their right side up. And uh, I don't know what your views are, but I've been uh, reading a lot of philosophy late for some years now. Mm-hmm. And one thing that interests me is you know, how we went from enlightenment towards uh, from reasoning towards postmodernism, where we have, we have kind of underplayed the idea of reasoning and we've become so, so engrossed in the idea that everyone has their own reason. So reality can never be understood. You know, Shakespeare said, beauty lies in the eyes of beholder. So everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own perspectives. I don't know how progressive we can be as a society from, from that, if you, if you look at it from that perspective. If everyone has their own views, how do we move forward then? Yeah, it's a different form of logic, which has been brought forward from complexity, right? Complexity thinking. So we just have to come to terms with that we still are reasoning, but we're reasoning in a different way, I think. That's such a good point. I don't know, what, what are your views on this whole idea of complexity? I, I, I have not come to grips with it, honestly. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it is a, a difficult topic. I, I remember I, my first book I read, Ralph Stacy. Uh, it took me like days to read one chapter. I, and I kept reading it over and over again. <laughs> I said, you have to understand this. I, I was like driven to understand it. Um, and it's interesting that you ask that because that's how I got to relationship, really crystallized my ideas about relationship because Ralph Stacy kept t- talking about relationship psychology so that organizations operate on a relationship psychology because power really runs the organization. And so your relationship to the person in power or the group in power determines what you're able to do or not do in in the short run. Of course, you always have the choice to leave the organization, right? But not everybody feels that way or sees that because they worry about making a living or perhaps their, their personality just doesn't allow them to jump off into the unknown. But anyway, so Ralph Stacy really got into how we're not 
really as independent as we think we are because we are always uh, influenced, even when we're thinking by ourselves in our office. There are thoughts that come from other sources. It's a book we read or a mentor or a conversation we just had. So all of those things are always there impacting our line of reasoning. And we choose them according to those that we like and we leave aside those things that we don't agree with. Of course, that's called unconscious bias, right? So the relationship factor arose from two things. One is my own experience, uh, having been raised in my early years in Mexico, uh, we were very much a, a collective culture. And then moving to United States, I, I was born here, but I lived the first 10 years in Mexico. So those are my formative years. Uh, and when I moved here, uh, it was very, very difficult to absorb the individualism that was in the U.S. culture. I mean, it's extreme. I, and well, according to Hofstede, it's the most extreme in the United States. So you're constantly, I mean, we have the worst problems with like racism and, you know, the clashes, which everybody has been watching on the news because we have the group that says, no, we're collective. We need to take care of each other. And, and another group saying, absolutely not. Every time you help somebody, you're, you're ruining their life. You're ruining their chances of making it on their own by their own bootstraps. Forgetting, of course, that they didn't make it by their own bootstraps either, but, you know, that's forgotten, right? So, uh, so my, my growing up in collectivism, I was much more sensitive to the importance of relationships. Growing up in a highly racist uh, society uh, made me hyper aware of uh, who I could trust, who I could not trust, who I had to please. I had to always be adapting and changing to the power around me. So I brought all of that into um, the workplace, but it took many years for that to really crystallize uh, because I was socialized so deeply that the first time I read about how uh, all of the lands were taken from the Cherokee Indian nation and the trek that they did across the country and how so many of them died, I couldn't digest it. I, I just didn't know what to do with the information. <laughs> and I turned in my paper and my professor said, what happened? You didn't, you didn't reach any conclusions. You know, I just couldn't, I just couldn't because uh, it was so shocking to me that I couldn't take it to the next step. So here I am 70 years old, published my first book at 69 because of all those years of suppression and getting released from all of the other, the ways of thinking that have developed me. And I hope that my book helps some people arrive there more quickly. And, and from the feedback I've been getting, I think people are saying, aha, maybe, maybe this uh, applies to me. Yes. I'm sensing a bit of Paulo, Paulo Freve as you're talking, the, the pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, yes, very much. I, I have lived it. I, my first job was as a teacher. I graduated with a teaching credential um, 
and started a master's program in education. And I went into kindergarten thinking that I was going to be in control, but I wasn't because the only thing they don't teach you in your curriculum is how to work with children. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) They teach you how children learn and the best way to present the information. But you go into the classroom and especially I had 35 five-year-olds running around (laughs) and me going, oh my gosh, what did I sign up for? And so learning that process of, of how to work with them and help them learn was wonderful. And yeah, you, you brought up uh, Paolo because it was a very low income neighborhood, of course, uh, Spanish speaking, and I was bilingual. So I spoke in English and Spanish to them. And my class, like the, the, this was back in the seventies, my five-year-olds were learning to read. Other five-year-olds were not learning to read um, because I had that expectation, you can do this. And they did. Fascinating. As you're speaking, uh, I can mirror some of those experiences, uh, Rosa. Yes, Um, how so? Yeah, I mean, coming from India um, and and being brought up in a close to a very poor family and experiencing an education system, which was very highly technocratic in nature. And, you know, uh, there's not much to argue when it comes to two plus two. Uh, It has to be a four. Being born in a system like that, but also coming from a very religious, very dogmatic kind of beliefs in the family. My mother still is a very religious person. And you're not supposed to question so many do's and don'ts. And and to meet the love of my life, to come to the UK and then start with a master's in economics, which was a kind of repeat of what my previous education was, very, very technocratic. And then uh, being offered uh, to do a PhD in social sciences. Was a, was a uh-huh. huge, huge change. Yeah, big leap. Absolutely. So I had no idea until the age of 29. People call, you know, talk about reflection and thinking. I had no idea what that really means. I had absolutely no idea. So uh, you know, my, my professor, he, he asked me to, to write an essay. Uh, and uh, and I, I went and read something like 120 papers on that to write an essay. And I uh, learned some of his, his stuff also. And I wrote in the essay exactly, and I, 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 I would struggle to come up with my own vocabulary, with my own words, because there was no reflection at all. It was just absorbing and cramming in, in one sense. And this is repeating what you have just read. There's absolutely no reflection at all in, in my work. And at one point, he, he called me to his office and said, it's, it's impossible to do a PhD in this, in this way. You will just uh, kill yourself if you don't stay away from books at all. You have you sh- you do a lot of reading. There's a lot of hard work there, but I see no original thinking whatsoever. Absolutely, mm-hmm. all you're doing is just repeating what you're reading. Uh, and in some places, it becomes so visible; it looks like you're plagiarizing things. Mm. So that was interesting. And then you know, Rosa, I, I just uh, I, I closed the books uh, because my idea was to to read something and quickly start to write an assignment. And I closed the books and I. I I went out for a walk and just struggled to come up with one paragraph or, or that was more or, you know, an expression from inside. And it took me a long, long, long time to, to come up with one sentence. And I, I would struggle to say, to, uh, I would go back to him and say, I don't know how to write. I have no courage to even start writing something because I don't know where to draw the inspiration from. So he told me something like this. He said, why don't you do something? Uh, it's, when you started writing an article or an essay, why don't you say something like, 
this essay is about so and so, and that gives you a way forward to write one sentence. Honestly, I mean, I, uh, I was actually shocked and surprised that uh, there was so much creativity sitting inside and just needed to be tapped. And I can tell you that if from that master's in economics, I went to do a, a job, maybe find a job and, 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 and do what I was already doing, I would have gained nothing from that higher education or further education. It's a, a PhD in social sciences and anthropology and everything that followed was a complete change in me as a person, complete change. I, I started to become so critical about everything, so argumentative. It was fun. It, I mean, it is still fun. I, I totally get it. You know, well, I hope I do. Uh, when you say that you you come from one form form of life and you you entered into a completely different form of life, and you know, sometimes we we don't realize that it's a very unique gift that we bring to ourselves and and to to other people also. Uh, well, it, it's an understanding uh, which at first like you, I wasn't even aware that I had this inside of me, right? That I you're constantly adjusting and adapting in a way that certain people have had the privilege of not having to adapt. <laughs> uh, and so the way that you have survived, you have become successful is something that you can actually teach. And that's a process. It's not a formula. And so that's what I'm trying to do with safety professionals. I'm saying, uh, okay, guys, obviously rules and policies aren't going to cut it. So are you willing to learn about the social sciences? Are you willing to learn about social systems? Because it's a hard lesson that I had to learn when I went into the classroom. It's, it's no different. I didn't know how to work with children. A lot of them, most of them don't know how to work with people. I mean, they're all young graduates with a science background. <laughs> and now all of a sudden they go, oh, okay, this is the way you're supposed to do it. And they are stunned when they get told where to go. You know, hey, leave me alone. Uh, they, they have no idea. We set them up for a very unhappy experience in the workplace, whereas if you, had, if you had learned your social skills in, I think we should start in kindergarten, which is where you learn everything you need to know, and not uh, make it a second-class subject. Because right now the technical is everything, STEM. Everything is STEM, STEM, STEM. But have you noticed, Nippon, that a lot of articles are coming out that, yeah, it's great to have STEM skills, but the things we're really looking for are analytic thinking, communication skills, a completely different set of skills and uh, mindset, right? So you went and got your PhD and all of a sudden you have this, you know, uh, tremendous experience. Why didn't you just quit? Why didn't you say, oh, I'm going to go to a different PhD where I don't have to uh, do all this soul searching. Why, why didn't you just change? Well, I came very close to it, actually. I bet. Yes, it would be a very painful experience to be told. You sound like you're plagiarizing. I mean, that would really get to me. I still remember it was the, the seventh or eighth month of uh, the program that I was uh, enro enrolled into. So it was a four years PhD program. And I was in the ninth month and I, I gave a call to my professor in economics, um, who, you know, where I studied my master's just before entering into the PhD program. And I said, is there any opportunity 
that I could turn it into an economics PhD. And he said that, uh, I think your funding uh, body that has funded you for the PhD has made it very clear that they're looking to, to create a network of social scientists around the world. So there's not much I can do to help you there. I was, was absolutely frustrated. And at, at one stage, I remember my wife used, and she, she comes from an engineering background, and she would sit with me in the evening and go through essays in critical realism to help me understand, because I had no clue what I'm reading. Absolutely not none. The transformation happened uh, when I started to go in the field mm. and uh, started to talk to people. And the, I remember the first time I came back was with uh, an awful lot of assumptions about everything. And the same professor said, says to me, says that it seems like you already have conclusions to, to everything. Then there is no point doing the PhD. So it, it, was, it was one shock after another until I started to understand. It took me a long, long, I mean, I don't think I still understand it, but it took me a long time to understand that the merit, the value really lies in nuances, seeking nuances in everything. And I was so far away from those nuances because uh, all my life, my education was around with deterministic kind of thinking. You know, there is no need, there is no nuance. The technical education is not designed that way to, to seek, you know, to, to unpack those assumptions and, and, and seeking meaning in things and then being constructive and creative. Uh, it's like you have, you know, a priori kind of uh, knowledge that you don't seek empirical evidence to prove anything. It's already said and you just have to now follow the structure and, 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 and prove it. Yeah, and that, that is the reaction I, uh, to the Middle Ages and all the emphasis on spiritualism and say, okay, we're gonna just clarify everything once and for all. We're going to seek evidence-based truth, but the evidence-based truth became based on everything that is physical and concrete. So many aspects, like the, the importance of emotions in decision-making. I remember when I first read that with, uh, from Damasio and I was thinking, wow, that makes a lot of sense. You know, if you, if you remove the emotional component from decision-making, no decision gets made. And yet pound it into you, you know, don't let emotions influence you. You have to make uh, an objective analysis and an objective conclusion but it doesn't work that way. And it certainly doesn't work in safety when we're doing accident investigations or you know, any type of, of critical thinking because safety is a people business. It's about working with the whole person, not just the brain, or I should say, yeah, the brain or the mind. You are working with the brain, but not just the logical uh, part of the brain. But in that sense, Rosa, I mean, curious to hear that, what do you make of this idea of safety? What, what does it actually mean? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a function, it's a department, because we said, oh, people are getting killed, so let's make a group of people responsible for guiding uh, and shepherding that aspect of work, just like we have engineers you know, in charge of design. So safety people. However, even though we say safety first and safety is a priority, it isn't really because the real priority is profit, reputation. Well, so money runs everything. So safety is caught in a conundrum because they have all of this responsibility, but none of the power to make it happen. 
there's so much confusion. I see it all everywhere about what it means, what safety means, uh, what, what is a safety professional, who's qualified. Most of the people working in safety don't ha even have you know, degrees. Uh, they were just chosen. That you, you look like a good person, come on up and, and be in charge of safety. So it's a, it's, it's a good question, Evan. I think it's uh, because as a society, we're very unclear on safety as a value. We haven't really made that decision uh, that the safety of the people is more important than the profit. And uh, how do you approach this, Rosine, in your work, the whole idea of notion of safety? How do, what, what sort of analytical framework do you use? Well, I, um, what I'm focused on now uh, is the leadership development of helping the leader get in touch with their own emotions and awareness, becoming more socially aware teaching the importance of listening through experiential exercises. Because we keep saying conversations are very important, but it's not a conversation unless you're really listening, unless you, the person that you're talking with trusts you or you trust them. It's, so that's why I wrote that true communication only happens through conversation, but within a relationship. So you and I have, even though we don't know each other very well, we have established a relationship to the degree where we can have this conversation. But if you just called me one day and started asking me these questions, uh, there, there wouldn't be any uh, sense-making to it. And everybody said, perhaps uh, people think, oh, I hired this person or this person works for me, so I have a relationship with them. Uh, basically, they owe me work, right? I, I pay you, I, so you owe me the work well done. Uh, and it's very hard to get people to understand that the money, it's important, <laughs> especially you know when people are living at the edge of, of existence, right? Uh, which is why people work for almost nothing uh, when they're on the verge of starving. Uh, but for people like us, money is not the driver. Uh, and, and it's true for much, many more people than we think. I have worked uh, with the employees at the plant level that are being taught, you know, about different safety programs or quality or empowered work groups. And their level uh, for need of creativity and autonomy is just as high as mine. They only have a high school diploma, so they didn't have an opportunity to develop it. That potential is still in there. And so you go in there and we unleash it. We teach people analytical skills. We teach, I teach about social skills and treating each other and how to influence. Uh, and they are then able to do amazing things. And I don't know how many plant managers I've talked to that he goes, wow, I tried to get that done, uh, you know, for months, they got it done in a week. Wow, you know, let's say that the maintenance group, wow, you know, we needed to save uh, $50,000 on our budget. They saved 500,000. But uh, telling people that story 
doesn't always convince them that this is the approach they should take. And I'm trying to, I mean, other than innate readiness, I don't know how you could move somebody forcibly from the logical profit view over to the people-centered well-being view because you're going to get actually get more profit from that. Going back to the idea of conversations, uh, you know, the, the, you talk about conversations as such a powerful way to create that trust uh, between people, if I, if I understood it right. The curiosity I have, uh, Rosa, is that what makes it so difficult to have a good conversation in an organization, yeah. you know, any social setting, for example? Because, and this is one of your favorite topics, the lack of psychological safety. It's become kind of a buzzword now, but basically uh, this has been talked about in the social sciences for decades, that one of the biggest risks you can take is social interaction. And of course, when you're talking upwards to power, you have to be super careful about what you're saying because you could lose credibility, uh, you could lose the relationship, your position. And then, and when you're talking to your peers, the same thing, right? Because you have to, they have to see you as competent. And so you can see how now I can't ask that question because I feel like I should already know. So I can't ask, well, what, what do you really mean by that? And think about our conversation here. You know, tell me more about that. Maybe your definition is different from mine, but I won't know unless I ask you about it. But a conversation is, is really caring about what the other person is saying. If that component is missing, uh, then it can't happen. And there has to be that degree of psychological safety where you can take the risk of saying something that could conceivably lower your status. I don't know, if, have you ever had an experience like that where you had to be very guarded? Oh, I've lived that experience for my life, at least my childhood. Uh, maybe some other day I will talk to you about how we were raised as children, uh, but mm -hmm. also uh, more than me, it was my younger brother who, who became the real victim of, of this, this thing. But uh, just uh, on the issue, I think you touched on something really important. Uh, how do you understand psychological safety? So that is the end of the first part of my conversation with Rosa Kirillo. Uh, you know, I had a very different topic in mind, but what a conversation it turned out to be. And that is precisely the beauty of a conversation. It goes where it goes. But to me, the important thing was the quality of the conversation. We often talk about psychological safety, but we miss a very important point, which is that there is no psychological safety without deep listening, without somebody being genuinely present in the moment and being interested in what you say. And Rosa so naturally created that space. Would you believe it was only my second time speaking with Rosa, but it never felt that way. If you are a leader, there is something really powerful to take away from this episode, and that is understanding the power of deep listening. If you want to be understood, make sure you'd spend time understanding the point of view of other people. More on this when we meet again next week to discuss psychological safety in further detail. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I hope the time you spent was worthwhile. 
If the podcast has made you think, slow down and reflect, I have achieved my purpose. Please share it with others in your community. That way the message goes far and wide. I spend a lot of time thinking, researching and producing meaningful content. If there's a specific topic that you wish to know more about, please let me know. If I can, I will make every attempt to create something that is meaningful and valuable to you. If you have a topic that you would like to discuss with me, please feel free to be in touch, particularly if there's something you don't agree with. Disagreements are a lot of fun. I wish to also remind you that all my podcasts, related reference material and transcripts for each podcast is available on my website novellas.solutions. You can also get in touch with me on the same website or through LinkedIn, Twitter or my personal website nepinanand.com. Thank you for listening.